and welcome to Church for the Cities podcast in Yuma, Arizona with lead pastor Tyrone P. Jones. Our mission is for people to encounter the reality and presence of God. For sermon videos and next steps, visit us at ctcfamily.com. Now join us for the message. So we are, we've, all week we've been dealing with this whole issue of uh, starting last Sunday. It's, this series has been on Let's Talk Sex. And today I want to talk about the one flesh uh, statement that the Lord makes on June 26, uh, 2015, the, the U.S. Supreme Court, it was a 5-4 decision. It was actually split with the conservative branch, conservative side, and the liberal side, and then there was a swing vote by uh, at Judge uh, Kennedy, uh, who was on the court at that time. But it was a 5-4 decision that the 14th Amendment requires all states to grant same-sex marriages and recognize same-sex marriages granted in other states. So even though the statement means, even though that United States is a republic and each state has the ability to make decisions within the confines of their state, this ruling by the Supreme Court in 2015 basically says that no state has the authority to supersede what the Supreme Court has determined the 14th Amendment says, according to their interpretation, meaning that even if someone got married in a state that doesn't acknowledge same-sex marriage, same-sex marriage should be acknowledged by that state and every state in the union. Uh, Let me just read some of the things that came out of this ruling that was written by, again, Justice Kennedy. The Constitution promises liberty to all within its reach, a liberty that includes certain specific rights that allow persons within a lawful realm to define and express their identity. So that initial statement is basically saying that there is a liberty that everyone has is no matter how they express their identity, they have a liberty and a right to do so. So what the Supreme Court did is they, they broke down some distinctions, and there was four of them, I'm only gonna talk about three, some distinctions on why it was a fundamental right, in their view, for same-sex couples to be married. The first one was the right to personal choice regarding marriage is inherent in the concept of individual autonomy. What that means is that each one of us individually, inherently, can make the determination of being married. The second thing is the right to marry is fundamental because it supports a two-person union unlike any other in its importance to the committed individuals, a principle applying equally to same-sex couples. And so that second one basically extends the first one saying that fundamentally anyone, any two people are able to be married and commit to a marital relationship and that would apply equally to same-sex couples also. Third, marriage is a keystone of our social order and there is no difference between same and opposite-sex couples with respect to this principle. Consequently, preventing same-sex couples from marrying puts them at odds with society, 
denies them countless benefits of marriage, and introduces instability into their relationships for no justifiable reason. So that third one is basically saying marriage is part of our social order, and there should be no difference for opposite sexes uh, versus same-sex sex, sex couples on this principle, and that we should not, be, we should not prevent anyone, including same-sex couples, from being married since it's a societal acceptance and to, to deny them would cause those couples an unjustifiable uh, instability. Uh, I sure hate to do this in the middle of this, but something keeps sounding like RTD2 behind me, okay. Uh, in closing, Kennedy wrote, wrote this to the court. No union is more profound than marriage for it embodies the highest ideals of love, fidelity, devotion, sacrifice, and family. Now, I do not want you to miss that language because I'm coming back to that. I don't want you to miss those words. No union is more profound than marriage for it embodies the highest ideals of love, fidelity, devotion, sacrifice, and family. He goes on to write, in forming a marital union, two people become something greater than, once, than what they once were. As some of the petitioners in these cases demonstrate, marriage embodies a love that may endure even past death. It would misunderstand these men and women to say, to say they disrespect the idea of marriage. Their plea is that they do respect it, respect it so deeply that they seek to find its fulfillment for themselves. Their hope is not to be condemned to live lives in loneliness, excluded from one civilization's oldest institution. They ask for equal dignity in the eyes of the law. The Constitution grants them that right. That's the end of actually this, this, this statement, but it was, it was 103 pages. Now, you would think from what the Supreme Court stated in this decision in 2015, that the main issue is us agreeing on marriage. If we all agreed to the definition of marriage by the Supreme Court, then there's no problem to be solved. They've solved the problem. That's the basis of the judgment of the Supreme Court. If we all agree on what marriage is as they have defined it, based on what they believe the Constitution is saying, then same-sex couples should be allowed to marry legally. The problem with that definition by the Supreme Court is that it's not biblical. It's not a biblical definition of marriage. In a nutshell, to most people in the church and outside of the church, they see marriage as defined simply as companionship, deep intimacy, lasting relationship with another person. It's in a nutshell what sometimes you hear people say, you know, I've met my soulmate and we're celebrating that with marriage. On that view, if we went on 
that view alone, that means marriage is just an enduring commitment you made to another person because of an intense personal connection you have with that person. It's rooted in the idea that marriage, especially to this person, will fulfill emotional and relational need in such a unique way that you want that to last a lifetime. It's love, it's companionship, it's relationship that you want to last for a lifetime. Now I want you to think about that for a moment. If that is your understanding of marriage, then you should conclude that anyone who has emotional and relational connections that they want to last for a lifetime can get married. Whether it be people of the opposite sex or the same sex, whether it be a parent or a child, whether it be a sibling. If your definition of marriage is simply based on relationship, emotional connection, and intimacy that you want to last for a lifetime, then anybody can get married. And you have no reason to keep anybody from getting married. Some of y'all getting scared on where I'm going. The Bible doesn't define marriage that way. The Bible doesn't define marriage that way. It, it's not to say that those things aren't good and desirable. As a matter of fact, you better have them in a marriage. There better be some intimacy. There better be a close emotional uh, connection. There better be a, a, a mental connection. There, there, there better be the desire that you want the relationship to last for a lifetime. And you do need and want the relationship to have a personal fulfillment. But that can't be the end of the definition. Certainly not according to the scripture, because what we read in Genesis 2.24, it uses two words that God has determined must be part of any definition with marriage, and it's these two words, one flesh. One flesh. And here is what marriage is defined by God, because it's a union like no other union. It's not just an emotional bond. It's not just in a relational connection. I can have that. I can have that with my employees. I can have that with my coaches with football. You can have it with teams and societies and sororities and fraternities, and I can go on. You can have that kind of connection, but marriage goes beyond that. It's a union of heart, mind, spirit, and don't miss this body. It's the uniting of the uniting of two bodies is not optional. And according to the definition of God, the uniting of those two bodies that makes it one flesh has to be able to reproduce. Are y'all following me? Has to be able to reproduce. So that means intercourse. And the only manner by which God has designed intercourse and one sex union is for what the male sex organ and the female sex organ are designed to come together. That's the only way that reproduction can occur, and that's the only way we go from just being emotional, relational connections. We have to be able to come together one flesh, and that can only be done of people of the opposite sex. It's the only way that it can be done. 
if, if a bodily union is not essential for marriage or your definition, then you got no reason to oppose same-sex marriage. You got no reason to oppose it. If you cannot define marriage by the coming together of, 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 of two sexes coming together with the ability to reproduce, then you cannot define marriage according to the word of God. You're just marrying a soulmate. You're just marrying a friend, but it's not biblical marriage. And can I just tell you something? I got some close friends here, some deep friends here in the church, people that I love spending time with, I, coaches that I, that, I, that I travel with. Oftentimes, some of, some of those coaches and I, to save money, we stay in the same hotel room. I got elders that I've stayed in the whole, same hotel with. We have emotional connections. We have mental connections, but I ain't marrying none of them. Ain't marrying none of them. When one of them put their hairy leg on me, you better get yourself right on off. I'm married to a wife who I can connect with physically and according to God. That's how marriage is defined. And so when you, when you, when you think about it this way and you understand this whole matter goes beyond just emotional connection, then you can see why we as Christians oppose same-sex marriage. It's, it's not because we're trying to restrict people from loving each other or depriving people of long-lasting relationships, but we oppose same-sex marriage because that marriages, those marriages are not defined by the Word of God. If they do not have the properties to be able to unite together naturally with the possibility of procreating, then it cannot be defined as a biblical marriage. Now, that's pretty much the end of my sermon, honestly. I'm just going to give you a few observations and, and uh, give you plenty of time to get home and, and watch that NASCAR race. So let me just give you just a few uh, observations. I, I've learned this. I've learned this in my years of talking with people, um, that if, if, if whoever I'm talking to, if we don't have the same worldview, we're not going to agree anyway. If we don't have the same worldview, particularly meaning this, that if I'm talking to someone, whether it's a Christian or non-Christian, if they don't have a worldview that starts with God as our authority, we're not going to agree. We're not going to agree. If, if they don't believe that our authority starts above us, that our authority is from heaven, that God is the one that created and is the one that gives us understanding of what's right and true. If we don't start with that premise, we're never going to agree. We're never going to agree. And, and so we believe as believers, and it's, it's becoming more disturbing, honestly, with professing believers who don't start with that worldview and are able to let the culture define how they view things and how they determine things and how they make decisions and how they conclude what is right and what is wrong. For us as believers, it always has to start from the top down to us. If it starts from us and goes out this way, we've completely missed the vision that we're supposed to have of what is true. 
all of our worldviews should be based on the authority of God and his word. What we think about culture, how we make decisions, how we practice things in our life, what our character should be, the choices that we should make, that should never come from just us. It should always come from above, work in us, and then work itself out. Am I talking to the right church? And so let me just give you these these brief observations. One is this. What you think about sex and marriage begins with what you believe about God. All of our beliefs about everything, including sexuality and marriage, must be rooted in the truth that there is one God and he is our authority. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. If God is not our creator, if he's not creator, then we're free to do whatever we want. If God is not the creator, you're free to do whatever you want, but you can't have it both ways. You cannot believe that God is the creator and then reject his design for his creation. You can't have it both ways. Deuteronomy 4.39 says this, today recognize and keep in mind that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth below and there is no other. He is God and Lord above. Amen? Amen. Now, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians as kind of his outworking in the New Testament of what was said in Deuteronomy 4.39, and he says this, 1 Corinthians 8.6, but for us, there is one God, the author by whom all things were created and for for whom we live. Did you catch that? There's one God, the Father, who created all things and is for whom we live. In other words, we don't live unto ourselves. We live unto him. Why? Because he's God. Why? Because he's creator. Why? Because he's father. Why? Because he's Lord. And so we live unto him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things were created and through whom we live. I mean, that, that nails it right there. Christopher West went on to say this, and I, I actually love this quote. He says, we are free in a sense to do whatever we want with our bodies. However, we're not free to determine whether what we do with our bodies is good or evil. Did you catch that? We're free to do whatever we want with our bodies, but we're not free to determine whether what we've done with our body is good or is evil. There's another authority that makes that determination. Therefore, human freedom or choice is fully realized not by inventing good or evil, but by choosing properly between them. So God has the authority to determine what is good and what is evil. It's his truth, the truth, and it's his truth by which man will be judged. Romans 1, 18, 19, Then I'll skip down to verses 28 and 32. Listen to what it says. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Why can God do this? Because he's God. Because he's Lord. Because he's the authority. He's the one that has the ability to make the judgment. He's the one that calls good, good, and evil, evil. Verse 19. They know the truth about God because he's made it obvious to them. Verse 28, since they thought it was foolish to acknowledge God, 
He abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. And so what, what Paul is saying, of course, from the authority of God is, is, is it, we may embrace freedom and we may do things that we want to do, but when we embrace freedom and do what we want to do and we make the determination of whether we think is good or evil, we could be running headlong right into our own destruction right into our own destruction. Our thoughts and beliefs about sexuality and marriage must be rooted in the affirmation that God is a creator and what he has determined is good is what is good. Here's a, here's a second observation. God's love doesn't mean he ignores our sin, he saves us from it. His love doesn't mean he ignores our sin which it can be confusing sometimes in this culture because if you don't approve of what people do, I think you've heard it, I know I've heard it, if you don't approve of what people do, then you're hating on them. Well, God, even though he loves us, he doesn't ignore our sin. He wants to save us from it. He wants to save us from it. Sin is offensive to a holy God. He does indeed love us and he accepts us just as we are, but he doesn't leave us where we are. And thank God he doesn't leave us where we are. Thank God he doesn't. First Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8 says this, God's will is for you to be holy, so stay away from sexual sin. Then each of you will control his own body and live in holiness and honor, not in lustful passion like the pagans who do not know God and his ways. Never harm or cheat a Christian brother in this matter by violating his wife. He's dealing with talking about adultery or fornication. For the Lord avenges all such sins. As we have solemnly warned you before, God has called us to live holy lives, not impure lives. Therefore, anyone who refuses to live by these rules is not disobeying human teaching, but is rejecting God who gives the Holy Spirit to us. And so it's, it's not my teaching, it's not the church's teaching, it's not the elders or your small group's teaching, it's the rejection of the Lord himself and his authority. But thank God again, he doesn't leave us there. And, and you know, we could learn something, I don't think this is gonna be on the screen, but John chapter eight, we could learn how the Lord catches us where we are, loves us where we are, accepts us as people as where we are, but doesn't leave us in that condition. John chapter eight is the story of the woman that was caught uh, in adultery. You can find it, it begins in verse number two of John chapter eight. It says early in the morning, he, he went, went to the temple, all the people came to him, he sat down, he taught, verse three, scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. Of course, it's always interesting why they just brought the woman. You can't commit adultery by yourself. Just thought I'd throw that in there. Uh, verse four, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women, so what do you say? Verse number six, this they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without stone among you be the first to throw a stone at her. 
And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Now, I, I, there was no doubt about it. There was the, the evidence was there, even though we didn't see the fella. The evidence was there. There was two or three witnesses that the woman was indeed caught in adultery. And the scripture was also clear that the woman was to be stoned if that was the case. But Jesus wants to make a point here. He's not defying the law, nor is he saying, oh, leave the woman alone. All of y'all have sinned before. Oh, leave the, leave, leave, let it go, let it go. It just, I mean, she'll, she'll, she'll do better. It was just a mistake. It was just an error, just a failure. No, that wasn't the case. What Jesus wanted to show is this. This woman is to be loved, and this woman is to be accepted. So he brings it to a place to where every one of them had to come to the place to drop the stones. And I want you to hear this, church. We need to learn how to love people and put the stones down. Put the stones down. Our, our mission is not to be Jesus. What, Jesus is the only one that has the ability to bring condemnation. Our job is to get folks who can be condemned to get them to Jesus. Now, I know those folks thought they were setting this woman up to be stoned, but I can imagine Jesus was thinking, my goodness, I'm so glad you brought this sinful woman to me because out of this crowd, I'm the only one that can set her free. We ought to have the mindset that we want to get folks to Jesus, not condemn folks and stone them as if we're the most holy ones that have the ability to do it. So in Jesus's love of loving her and accepting her, notice what Jesus says. Now listen, he says, I'm not even going to condemn you, but don't miss this. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. Jesus loves us. He accepts us, but he doesn't leave us in a condition to continue to violate his word. Am I talking to the right church? He wants to save us from it. So Romans 5, 8 says, God showed his great love for us by sending his son to die for us while we were yet sinners. Can you say amen? amen. So here's the, the third and final observation. And I want to go back to this issue in, in Genesis 2 about the one flesh union because my, my statement basically is this. The one flesh union between a man and a woman points to the union of Jesus Christ and his bride who is the church. We are the bride of Christ. He's the bridegroom. We're the bride of Christ. He's making us ready for that great day with him. And what Jesus is saying here in, 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 in this mystery is that the commitment that I'm making to you is one of permanence. Every one of us in marriage, there's, I pray, that everyone who gets married, there's an intent for the marriage to be permanent, to last for a lifetime. But there's failures, man's failures, uh, failures on whosoever part, maybe both parts, whatever the case may be. And divorce has an effect upon people. And I, there's more to that I could say that I don't want to enumerate in here. But, but here is what I will say. Even though man doesn't always keep their promises, there is a God who does. There is a God who does. There is a God who does not lie to you. There is a God who keeps his word. There is a God who keeps his promises. Number, Numbers 23, 19 says this, God is not a man, so he does not lie. He is not human, so he does not change his mind. Has he ever spoken and failed to act? 
has he ever promised and not carried it through? I love hearing about a promise-keeping God. One of the things that makes this journey of faith so good and so real, even in tough times, is I got a God who will not lie to me. He's a God that keeps his promises. And so even when I don't know what's ahead of me, I got a promise-keeping God that says, I got your back. I made a promise to you, and I will keep my word. Can you say amen? 2 Corinthians 1.20 says this, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. So when you turn this and look at this from the standpoint of marriage, Ephesians 5.31 and 32 says it like this. As the scripture says, going back to Genesis, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it's an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. It's talking about the permanence of the relationship that we have with God. It's beyond that intimacy. It's beyond relational. It's even beyond that one union, that one flesh union. There's a permanence that comes when we understand what God is trying to show us in the life of two people coming together. It's, It's this very reason of permanence of what we're to have in our relationship with the Lord, that very reason why we oppose cohabitation. It evades permanence, it evades it. Todd Wilson in his book, Mere Sexuality, he said this, 60% of first time marriages begin with cohabitation. Many couples are afraid of getting stuck in a bad relationship or in the wrong relationship. So they try it out before committing. Lots of problems with that, including the effects of sex outside of marriage and the division that causes trauma when two people who are not married come together and then have to pull apart as if they actually were married and feel all the effects of divorce. There's a permanency that comes in our relationship with God. We're not cohabitating with God. God's made a commitment to us. I read this article in the Washington Post because of all the cohabitation and the damage that's done to people because of it. This article, this dude's name is Paul Rample. This, this is what he wrote. A high divorce rate means it's time to try wed leases. Here's how marital leases would work. Two people commit themselves to a marriage for a period of years. One year, five years, 10 years, whatever serves them. The marital lease could be renewed at the end of the term, however many times a couple likes. It could end up lasting a lifetime if the relationship is good and worth continuing. But if the relationship is bad, the couple could go their separate ways at the end of the term. The messiness is avoided and the end can be as simple as vacating a rental unit. Now you know as well as I do, it don't end up that clean. It don't end up that clean. So the whole wedless lease proposal or cohabitation is not a solution. It makes the problem worse. That's why our God made a commitment to us that we can count on for a lifetime. Jesus didn't come and say, listen, let's just try to work this out a little bit. Let's cohabitate. And hey, if you like me, then cool. If I like you, cool. Then let's just stay together. He said, no, I'm marrying you for a lifetime. This is a, this is a permanent thing. 
and it fits right into the biblical definition of marriage. Jesus says to us as a people, I will never leave you or forsake you. Now, I'm going to tell you that's important to me because there's some days I'm struggling with my faith. There's some days I don't get prayers answered and I'm a little bit disappointed. There's sometimes I want God to do this and he does this. And but it's not dependent on my feelings because he says, I'm with you forever. You, you know those words that we say in marriage? I can hear Jesus saying that from heaven. He says to you, Tyrone, we're to, I'm to have and to hold you forever. Better or worse, Tyrone, I got you. Richer or poor, I got you. Sickness or in health, I got you. To love or to cherish, I got you. Jesus is saying, I'm marrying you for your life. He goes on to say, I'll never leave you or I'll never forsake you. I'm not just with you here on earth. I'm here with you all the way to eternity. He's the only God who keeps his promise. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, if you're looking for somebody who you knew you, you can count on all the time, there's only one option. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the authority of our life. I'm done. You're going to owe me some credit. Everybody stand. I'm going to make three appeals here. Prayer team, you'll come and I'll make, make we'll do three prayers and then we'll wrap this up. I, I want to pray specifically for three groups of people. One is, one of, is, is all of you that are married. All of you that are married. And listen, you, you've made a commitment. Maybe through that commitment, there's good days, bad days. There's days that maybe you second guess. Maybe times you wish things weren't going the way that they were going. But, but I, I want you to know that the, the, the same God that's able to help you persist through tough times is the same God that will give you the strength to persist through some tough days in your marriage. And, and I'm, I'm telling you, you are absolutely better together. You're better together. You're better together. So I'm going to pray that those commitments that you made, they are what you said they are. Second group that I'm going to pray for people that might be in what we talked about co cohabitation situations or maybe you're doing things physically that you shouldn't be doing as if you are committed I'm just going to tell you it's only going to cause you more harm and more damage it's only going to cause you more harm and more damage and you want the Lord to be the Lord of your life and, and hear me God knows what's best for you if the Lord said that it's not good for you take him for his word it's not good for you. It's not good for you. If you're looking for love and you think giving yourself away physically to someone who says they love you and depends on how you're hooking up, it may not even be the words of love exchange. It's just physical body. Trust me, that's causing you more harm than you can calculate. Believe God for his word. Trust the love from, from him that can bring fulfillment and lead you into a path to the arms of someone who will love you like Christ loves you. And then the third group I want to pray for is people, whether you're in the house or, or online, is people
people who are really looking for someone who will keep their word to them. I'm telling you, who you're looking for is the Lord. He keeps his word. Your heart's been broken. You've been through some tough stuff. You relied on people, you counted on people, and failure has come and disappointed has come, and, and you're thinking, I don't think I can trust anyone. I'm telling you, there is one you can trust. There is one who you can trust who keeps his word, and that's the Lord God Almighty. Every head bow. Father, as I go before you, I'm going to ask, Lord God, for those that are in the house that have committed to marriage. Some even, Lord, at the sound of my voice, may be walking through some challenging moments in their marriage even right now. Lord, I ask you to work for, for help and for healing. Help those, Lord God, who are having some issues, whatever those matters are. Help them, Lord God, to, to reside in the truth of your word and let that determine their actions, their statements, and, and uh, the manner in which they communicate to one another. May the authority of your word, Lord God, be the authority of their life. Bring help and bring healing, whether it be people, whether it be ministry. But Father, we pray for a deep work in the lives of those who are gathered here and those that are watching that are in marital unions. Unions, Lord God, that are biblical. Unions that have come together, Lord God, emotionally and mentally. And, and uh, Lord, they've come together bodily. Lord, we're praying for your help and your strength in the lives of every married couple at the sound of my voice. Father, I pray for those that are in, in either cohabitation situations or not married, but Lord, engaging in, in a physical intimacy. Lord, your scriptures are true. This only brings damage. This only brings damage and can set people up for greater pain. I pray, Lord God, that those that might be in that, in that category, Lord God, that they recognize the word of God and know that you can be trusted. And you said it's best with someone that you are married to. So, Father, preserve them, help them, sustain them. May they surrender their life to you and allow you to be the Lord of their life as you prepare for them the one that you have for them that they can come together in right biblical union. And, Father, for those that are watching and listening that don't know if there's anybody that they can trust, I pray, Lord God, that their eyes be turned to you. You're the trustworthy one. You're the one that keeps your word and keeps your promises. Maybe somebody watching or somebody in the house has never made a commitment to you as Lord and Savior. May today be the day that they make that commitment and says, I'm going to trust my life in the hands of the Lord, the Savior, who's never broken his word. Let the day be a new day for him, beginning a new life, one of the peace that comes from you, the joy that comes from you, a hope and an anticipation. And Father, I thank you for hearing our cry. It's in Christ's name we pray. May the people of God say amen. Come on, let's give God a hand praise if you would.